What's happening, everyone? This is the first interview we've released, and it's with a guy called Eddie Connachton. Eddie's one of the most respected people in golf course design, not just in Ireland, but globally. He just happens to be the dad of a good mate of mine. He's honestly the most interesting and knowledgeable person I've ever met when it comes to golf course design, and he's an absolute character. He's worked on dozens of golf courses all over the world, Got some great stories about working closely with Jack Nicholas during the design of Killeen Castle, as well as playing college golf against the likes of Davis Love III. He uh, also happened to work side by side with Pat Ruddy to build the back nine in Wicklow Golf Club, which is just nice because it's where a few of us in the pod grew up playing. Uh, he's played nearly all the courses ranked in the top 100 in the world, and he'll give you a perspective that you've likely never got before on some of these courses. This is unplayable. Enjoy the chat with Eddie Connachton. I'm delighted to be joined for our first ever sit-down interview with golf course architect, golf course designer, specialist in agronomy, and all the above, Eddie Connachton. If you're a member of a golf club in Ireland, there's a good chance Eddie has done work on your golf course. Eddie, how are you doing? Very nice to meet you, Connor. So Eddie is joining me here in Melbourne. He's out here visiting his son and my good mate, Manny, uh, and they've been touring the best golf courses that Australia has to offer. First things first, Eddie, how have you found Australia? Okay, absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's been a marvellous experience uh, to think that we've, we're here a month and I've already played uh, five of the top 10 golf courses in Australia. So very privileged to have been able to do that. And that's primarily through in terms of playing Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. Uh, it was through my very good friends at the Hitch Golf Club that uh, helped me with that because they're pretty hard to get up. Yeah, so they certainly are i can tell you how hard they bloody are to get on <laughs> and tell me this so you've played five of them yes tell me them okay so basically uh we started out in Royal melbourne uh played the west course uh that was our first uh, uh big game and that was uh that was really special in the sense that obviously it's the number one course in australia and indeed uh, in the top 10 of the world uh rankings i think are something that can be very subjective and uh, I get asked the question all the time from all my friends, and you do ask me, Connor, uh, you know, what's my favorite golf course in Ireland, or what's my favorite golf course in America, or now in Australia, but I'm able to add to the list, and then Europe. And I find that uh, to try and pick one uh, that's better than the next, it's always very hard because they're all equally as good. And the one thing I always say to people when I'm talking about rankings is that, you know, back home in Ireland, all the rankings, and indeed in the world, the rankings are based on what are the top golf courses from the golden era of design, which is the 1920s or mm. in around that time. And invariably at home is the Lynx courses. We get all the top ratings. Uh, last year, I think the ratings in Ireland, uh, Adair Manor, which of course uh, they did a wonderful job in upgrading their course, and they got into the top 10, I believe, if I'm correct in thinking that, uh, as a parkland course. So I always say that there are wonderful parkland courses. They're absolutely sensational links courses uh, in Ireland and the UK, and now we've experienced some here in, in, in Australia. And uh, I think comparing links to parkland to heatland, uh, it's like trying to compare apples with oranges with pears. Mm. 
So they're all slightly different, and I think they all deserve to have their own, in my view, uh, rankings. So I think they're unfortunately loaded. The rankings, the world rankings are loaded, uh, other than, say, America, where most of the golf courses are parkland anyway. There's not really have any traditional links courses. They've tried. Uh, Chambers Bay was a great example of it a number of years ago, 2015 for the US Open, and unfortunately for them, they were doing great. And then they just can't grow the grasses. Uh, that got a lot of like bad press that week. Yeah, it did. It got a lot of bad press, unfortunately, because of the greens. Uh, it was a modern, a modern uh, course built on the coast up in Washington, uh, outside Seattle, I believe it is. And uh, they were doing wonderful, I understand, right through for a month before they opened. Perfect greens and everything. And unfortunately, then, as happens with the uh, US Opens, uh, the USGA uh, who run the Open mm-hmm. in America, they come in and they have certain criteria that they want for their championship. And that's usually uh, uh, super slick, speedy greens. Mm-hmm. And fescue grasses, which is what was on Chambers Bay, would not tolerate low heights of cut. Right. Yeah. So the great, I and mean, here's the lovely, lovely thing I saw on my trip to Australia was that in the sand, on the sand belt at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath, and indeed your lovely course, Spring Valley, and then, and then the uh, Metropolitan, they're all the bent grass greens. Uh, or in your case, the Spring Valley mixture of bent grass and polyannual. Yeah. Could you could you kind of define what they are for people who wouldn't? Okay. Well, they're basically certain characteristics. Yeah, they're they're what's termed cool season grasses. They're grasses that grow uh, naturally in uh, what we call the temperate climate. Mm-hmm. So not a not not a hot season grass. So not like Bermuda or or zoysia or Paspalum, which are all grasses that grow in the southern uh, portions of the world where the temperatures. Uh, exceed 80 degrees uh, for more than 200 days a year. So they're the warm season grasses. So when you look at, say, East Lake, in, uh, uh, when you're looking at the, at the World uh, uh, Championship there, uh, they're, they're actually uh, uh, pastel grass, which is a wonderful grass that they're now growing in the desert countries because it's salt pollened. So you can spray, you can water your greens right. with water that has some salt in it. So you're saying then the likes of golf courses in Dubai or Abu Dhabi would be quite similar to the greens perhaps in the likes of where East Lake with Ebb's Tour Championship. Yes, correct. So they're what they're, what they're called warm season grasses. Yeah, right. So Bermuda grass, Bermuda grass, or in the case of that, some of those new courses, Paspal, which is a, which was a new grass. The reason being is that uh, uh, cool season grasses, which are uh, all in the, all in the say, our temperate climates, so northern hemisphere climates, mm-hmm. anywhere from, say, uh, if we take it the UK, uh, northern northern part of America, and indeed your climate here in Australia is very temperate. You get warm days, but it's still a temperate overall. Well, especially Melbourne, for people yeah. who wouldn't necessarily be familiar with Australian climate, Melbourne okay. is, as uh, it's still in Australia, so it's obviously hot, yeah. but we get winters, yeah. as opposed to further north in Australia yeah. where they don't get winters. So essentially what it is, is that the warm season grasses will only grow when the uh, uh, 200 days a year, the temperature needs to be over 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So that's what you see. So when you see the, say, the, the early part of the tour that you see in America just now, mm-hmm. uh, they'll be all on warm season grasses. Uh, and they'll have fairways overseeded. Uh, uh, Augusta is a great example, for instance. The fairways of Augusta are Bermuda grass, but overseeded with the cool season grass, hence the beautiful green that they have for the entire mm-hmm. tournament. That's in April. Uh, that grass then uh, dies off in, 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 in May, and it goes back to the normal warm season grass. So that's what it's, so it's really essentially uh, a, a warm season grass that grows and can withstand the high heat. Because our grasses, as we say, the UK grasses and the grasses that you have here in, in Australia, uh, they won't survive the high temperatures. 
Bentgrass, uh, it's great at surviving high temperatures, but it won't survive uh, continuous uh, daily temperatures over 90 degrees. Okay. And of course, then the other grass that everybody has to deal with, and everyone on your podcast will be familiar with the term coannula. Yes. Or, or annual meadowgrass, which is very prevalent in uh, all of the UK, all of America, and indeed also here uh, uh, for growing the greens. So our, our grass is at home in Ireland and the UK. Uh, most parkland courses, in fact, I'd say without exception, will probably, the greens will probably dominate with annual meadowgrass, okay. simply because the climate at home uh, uh, is very uh, favorable to that grass growing and surviving on a continuous basis. And uh, whilst lots of people try and get the bent grass in, and we all we build, we build new golf courses, we sold them with bent grass greens or pesky greens in terms of links courses, and pesky guys are, are doing better now uh, uh, in how they can maintain the fescue. And what's wonderful about it, and again, we can talk about it, the experience of being here, is that with the fescue grasses, uh, they're more traditional links. So they need to have open open areas, uh, not tree-lined golf courses, uh, because they like lots of uh, air, like lots of light, and they don't like moisture. So fescues, and the reason the fescue guys are doing so good now, and it's actually one of the things that I think is so important, in terms of managing golf courses, is that uh, the, the 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 need for speed yes. uh, on greens, in my view, is detrimental uh, to the long-term sustainability of golf greens. Uh, because uh, when you put that grass, you cut that grass solo, and you put it under so much stress, it has a chance of dying very quickly. And this is one of the things that people get. Uh, the ordinary golfer, unfortunately. Uh, thinks that if the green is running at 12 or 30 minutes stint, it makes it a good golf green. And plus, the amount of times that I'm playing in, say, June or July back in Ireland, and say it's Captain's Prize Week, and the greens are in the best condition they're, they're in all year, every member will turn around and say, why can't they do it like this all year? Why can't they do it like that all year? Because the grass simply isn't able to take that low height to cut mm. on a continuous basis. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the grass plant uh, it has to survive by its leaf, which is what's up on top of the, the green. And that little small uh, little leaf, if you keep cutting it down to the nth degree, where in some cases it's going down to uh, two millimeters or lower, its only energy source is its leaf because it gets the uh, uh, photosynthesis from the sun mm -hmm. that helps it to grow, helps the root to grow. So you keep chopping it off all the time, it just won't survive. Right. Bottom line. So you'll lose them. So they, yeah, you lose they, them. They yeah, will, yeah. Like the grass so, will literally yeah, die. So what will happen is, unfortunately, some courses, them, <coughs> Jimmy, let's say, just as you said there, get them prepped for the uh, uh, for the captain's prize or the big big event. And then mow them down low, and then they have everything right, and then they let the height cut back up again. Yeah, yeah, that helps survive. Now, to me, that's okay. That, that people like that. I don't like that. I believe that a, a golf green, uh, especially nowadays, where we have sand-based greens, uh, and indeed back home now, in most places, in the building new greens put in internal drains for the sand profile, and you can now play greens all year round. So drainage is not an issue. So golf greens should be consistent throughout the season. Okay. So I'd much rather see a golf course aim at having their greens from the start of the spring all the way through to the autumn, having them at say nine and a half or ten, if you talk if you want to use a stiff meter reading mm -hmm. as a, as a guide, have them at that consistent speed so that they have them all year round. Okay. And now what you have is you've got the ability then to give the memberships uh, golf all the time, not this idea of two or three month golf. And then you're on temporary greens in the winter time. Mm. Uh, now, some places can't afford sand-based greens, 
Peter. What I'm saying is that it should be more to do with smoothness and trueness of the surface mm -hmm. rather than this need for speed. So okay. in other words, if you stand over a, a 10 foot putt, it's a great example, or even the, the RNA have a wonderful tool that they use uh, called a smoothness and trueness meter, and they base it on six foot. Okay. So they roll the ball across the green at six foot, and if that ball doesn't deviate, as in it doesn't wobble, then that's a smooth, true green. Right, so they find a straight push. Yeah. So then all the golfer has to do then is negotiate their pace. Yes. And as you know yourself as a good golfer, putting is all about pace. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you get your pace right on the greens, you'll invariably play very well. Yeah. So then that trips back now to say my experience here in Australia. Yes. Okay. But I got the impression you, you were you were talking there a little bit about Royal Melbourne and you went straight into rankings. I got the impression that perhaps you don't feel it justifies its ranking. No, I wouldn't say that because I tell you why I said that way in that rankings are personal and they're subjective. Yeah. So yes, so I mean, you could go there and you could say, look at the golf course and you could say, I could pick a number of holes that are absolutely outstanding. No golf course that I've ever played in all my years have 18 uh, perfect golf holes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and no one has made it yet. My, you, know, you, you can look at uh, some of the great, the great golf courses and they'll all have certain holes that, you know, they're there. But again, in the old days, the way golf courses were laid out, like the Royal Melbourne, like the great classic golf courses at home in Ireland, that is, they found the piece of land and then the great old architects found tees and found green locations that were all uh, proper, they, they were there, they were there farther. Mm. They moved the earth moving equipment. Today, when we build golf courses or these new golf courses, they can move so much dirt and shape it like uh, it doesn't matter what the site's like. So, yeah. actually, what's happened in the great age of mud architects that are very good to get these flat, boring pieces of land and they have to shape a golf course onto it. Mm. So, so Royal Melbourne uh, has what's wonderful, beautiful ch change of elevation, so the contour change, so the, that's there naturally. So they'll be set greens up on some of the hillsides, I think like this, the seventh green, my memory serves me right, the wonderful part three, yeah. it's up on top of the hill. Uh, the, uh, so, there's, so they're the areas, so when the guys were laying out those golf courses in the uh, end of the last century, they came in and they found those, they found those locations. And they said that's a good place for green. That's and they decided to choose raised greens as opposed to greens that are down down below. Because what I what I found when I played Royal Melbourne, and it's um, true of a lot of the sandbell courses over here, that there's a lot of like upturned saucers, there's a yeah. lot of greens that are raised, yeah. and it makes it extremely difficult because yes. it's so firm and fast. So you're trying to like run it in to the green. You have to have the right shape if you're going up a slope. And I I invariably don't hit as many greens as as yeah. I might back home. But you know, the reason for that, Connor, is that back in those days, uh, they didn't have, other than say the Lynx courses or indeed these uh, uh, sandbelt courses, which are on sand, obviously, being sandbelt, is that the, the reason that they had all those up upside down saucers and it contours up them is that water has to shed off. Yeah, the okay. So greens to be played will have to be able to drain. Mm. So basically, in the old days, they basically put the greens in and they put the contours on them that the water. Shed off the greens. That's so obvious, but I didn't yeah. think of that. So yeah. that then, that then, and of course, then that then added to the degree of difficulty when it came to putting and things like that. And the other thing that happened here, we go back again to the, the, the speed issue, is that then as the technologies moved on in terms of mowing, in terms of agronomy, in terms mm. of uh, 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 all the all the all the inputs that was into it, greens in the old days use a great stat. Uh, uh, in the old days, uh, like in the seventies, uh, in that era when we started watching golf on TV the most. And you'd see Augusta and you'd see Arnold Palmer with the wristy action. Mm -hmm. uh, student meter reading in Augusta in the 70s was uh, six and a half feet. What? Yes. 
as opposed to as nowadays where it's 12, 13. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They're tw twice as fast. Twice as fast and with the same country. Wow. Hence why you see such uh, uh, um, variation and such uh, what you might call ridiculous sloping of country. You take the 16th of Augusta, uh, the part three, yeah. and you hit the right hand side of the green, it peels off all the way down to the That back. hole in one pane on yeah, the back left exactly. on Sunday. In the old days, that wouldn't have done that because the greens were being cut at a quarter of an inch or in terms of new money, five millimeters. Okay. They're now being cut at under two millimeters. Jesus. A millimeter is the same thickness as an old penny. Now, you guys are too young to remember all that, <laughs> but it'd be like a cent coin. Yeah. So that's how tight they cut them. So it's like, it's like essentially uh, uh, putting on linoleum or on this floor that you have here in your, in, in, in your apartment. Yeah. That floor there would probably roll 16 on the stuff before. This wooden floor. That's, this wooden that's floor. That's insane. 16. And Augusta rolls at 13. 13. That's what wow. they, yeah. Uh, fastest ones, the fastest greens in America that they play on, on tournament are Oakland. Oh, yeah. So they'd be faster than oh, Augusta. They're faster than Augusta. What What are we talking? We're talking up to fourteen and a half, fifteen. Jeez. And so oh, th for context, a wooden floor here in my apartment, Oakmont would run nearly as fast. Nearly as fast. That's so you insane. can imagine just dropping the ball and just and any kind of slope you see, then it just runs. So it just got. So if you're above a hole, you've a three footer. I yeah, mean, the average golfer's got to barely get that out, keep that out of the green. Here's a stat for you, um, your, and your, your friend in your po podcast might like it. USGA did a study a number of years ago uh, about speed on greens, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they came up with the, with the stat, and it was a, a proper, properly researched uh, uh, project, where every six inches over nine and a half feet on the stint meter, so say you go nine and a half, ten feet, mm -hmm. will add 20 minutes to the round of golf. Really? Yes. And you know why? Because at 10, 10 and a half, 11, 12, 12 and a half, 13, then those one foot or two foot putts, they become for the ordinary golfer impossible because now they're three putt from that distance. Yeah. And that's what adds time onto the round of golf. That's very interesting. So it's an incredible, it's a good stat, but what happens is that the one or two, two foot putts, two foot putt on a 13 stint with any contour, hell's bells, Jesus it, it can take you a long time right and you home. can imagine well that's why US Open round when you're watching it on telly yeah. just takes so bloody long yeah and, 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 and again uh, and, and in, in the fairness of the two things the, the USGA probably were the people that uh, uh, brought in the stint meter into the because a stint meter really should be used as a tool to uh, uh, the head of the superintendent to allow him to have all his greens or her to have all their greens at the same pace yeah. But unfortunately, it's become a tool yeah. to slap people on the back. It's a challenge. Challenge. Uh, I mean, golfers say, oh, my greens are stimping at 13. Yeah. are stimping at 10. They're terrible. So I, I think it's, I, 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 I'm very passionate about this because uh, it's something that people uh, judge a green by speed rather than by trueness. Yeah. I'd much rather have a green that I know if I hit my six foot or 10 foot putt straight and smooth and get the pace right, that it won't deviate and it's lying going in. It's consistency. Consistency. There's the you mentioned a word a, a moment ago, agronomy. Yes. So taking a step back, that's what your specialty yes. is. Could you tell the audience a bit about your background? You went to America okay. to study. Okay, so basically in the, for my agronomy, for a start, I actually am from Roscommon, uh, in case any of you guys don't hear that lovely <laughs> accent is still there. And my dad was the greenkeeper at the Horn Iron Hole course. Yep. And uh, so I got my first taste of, of uh, agronomy and, and maintaining and working at a golf course as a kid driving a tractor mowing the fairways. And then of course got an interest in golf and then I, I, I got pretty decent at it. Uh, and then I got the opportunity to uh, train as an apprentice greenkeeper at Royal Dublin Golf Club. Uh, the, first, 
the first trainee greenkeeper in Ireland. Uh, uh, and it was just starting out and we, I did a three-year apprenticeship at Royal Dublin in Ellen Park uh, to get the Sitting Guilds of London uh, a certified greenkeeper uh, certificate. Okay. First one in Ireland. Right. Yeah. What, what age were you at this stage? I started, I was 18 and I finished uh, in Ellen Park when I was 21. Okay. So a three-year apprenticeship uh, between a year and a half at Royal Dublin for links mm-hmm. and a year and a half Parkland uh, at Ellen Park with two wonderful guys, uh, Jim Byrne, who will be, Jerry Byrne, his uh, son is the superintendent of the K-Club. Mm, uh, okay. And so there's, uh, he'd be a great friend of mine and mentor of mine uh, in, the, in the old days. And uh, he was on Ellen Park and the, uh, at the time. Uh, so that was the Parkland experience. And then there was a wonderful individual who was the honorary course officer at Ellen Park, a guy called Dr. Henry Spain. And he was a, he was a, a soil scientist. And he took an interest in greenkeepers. Okay. And he wanted to he wanted to promote greenkeeping in Ireland because back then it was only just it was everybody had the touch of the feel. It was it was an art, not a science. Yes. So he started the right. whole thing of the agronomy, learning about the learning about the soil structure, learning about the grasses, learning about the nutrition. And so I got all that through the city and guilds of London with Dr. Spain uh, teaching me uh, uh, privately, like just like you and I were sitting across from the table from one another. Mm. And he took me through that syllabus. And then I saw at that stage, I saw uh, uh, that all of the agronomists uh, in Ireland were from the UK. We had no indigenous uh, uh, Irish agronomists because nobody was, none of the colleges were uh, teaching, uh, uh, they all taught agriculture or horticulture. They didn't teach turf science because okay. it was a speciality. So hence the reason that then when I saw these, all these guys uh, from the UK uh, come into Ireland, I said, oh, that's a, an opportunity there for an Irishman to do something like that. But I knew I had to go somewhere else. Hence to America. Okay. So I went to college, I went to got myself a job in, uh, in, in New York on a golf course there, a wonderful golf course just actually not far from Wingfoot. I had, had an opportunity to go to Wingfoot for the 84 Open, but the offer I got took a belt because the tennis club was so much better. Right. And lovely guy to work for, and uh, uh, got to know the superintendent at Wingfoot, and he took me down and showed me everything going on at the 84 Open, blah, blah, blah. So, Jesus, I uh, that so, was incredible. So I went there, and, and, and then of course I had the vision to, I wanted to go to college. And in America, uh, they had the uh, uh, agricultural colleges, uh, top, top of their, top of their uh, uh, trade and top of their, their, their uh, profession, also had turf science. So you actually did your agricultural degree, but it specialised in turf maintenance. And that's the big difference between what we had in Ireland and what we had uh, right. in America. Okay. So that's why I went there. and uh, So I went to Purdue University out in the Midwest, uh, studied under a wonderful professor there, Dr. Daniel. In fact, he was one of the innovators of using sand to build golf greens and to uh, build sports pitches. Okay. Incredible individual. And he was, uh, so I spent four years at, at Purdue, got my, got my bachelor's degree in, 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 in agronomy, specializing in turf science, and hence the start of the agronomy profession. And you were there, and uh, you were picked up by one of the golf coaches. Yes, yeah, no, I had the grace, I had the grace. Uh, uh, I, I, was a, I was a decent player. Uh, when I went to America, uh, I went to America in, uh, uh, June 81, and just before I went to America, I got selected uh, for the youth team for Ireland. Uh, uh, a one-day international against Scotland. Okay. And my contemporaries were Philip Walton and Ronan Rafferty were on the team. Uh, Brendan McDade was on the team. Uh, who was John McHenry uh, and a guy, another lovely guy, Des Ballantyne from the north. So I was on the I was on that team, and I have the great distinction of being unbeaten. Playing for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'd milk that. Myself and my partner, Des Valentine, we won the courses in the morning and we were playing at Baltray 
and uh, I played a, a, a singles match in the afternoon against a young man called Ian Ford. He was then British voice champion. Okay. And I shot 67 rounds of tray and he burned the last hole to have the match with me. Wow. <laughs> so that was, I was able to play golf back then. Not like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you've taken the money off me, the two times you've bloody played, so you're all right. But and then when I got to Purdue uh, yes. uh, for, the, for the university, uh, Dr. Daniel, uh, who was my professor, he says, he says, let me introduce you to the, uh, the golf coach. This is the middle, this is January, 82 is when I started at Purdue. And uh, uh, Dr. Daniel took me over to the co golf coach in February. Now Purdue is in the Midwest, so it's like uh, uh, covered in snow, Cold. 20, 20 degrees below zero. Yeah. But the golf team uh, worked out in the uh, basement of the gym, hitting balls into nets. Sorry, Dr. Daniel brings me over to see the coach, Coach Campbell, Coach Joe Campbell. I'll tell you a story about him in a second. And next thing uh, he says, uh, hit some balls there into the net. So he's chatting away to Dr. Daniel, and I'm hitting some shots into this net here, and I'm hitting maybe 10, 20, 12, whatever shots. And uh, we were done doing that, then coach just says to me, he said, uh, what are you doing for spring break? And I says, uh, well, I'm doing nothing, I says, I'm here. He says, uh, will, you, will you come to Hilton Head with us for uh, spring training? So I says, will I what? And I says, of course, <laughs> you kidding me. Sorry, off to Hilton Head we go uh, uh, for spring training, and uh, he had he used to take 10, 10 boys uh, to, the, to the spring training, but he added me as the 11th that year. And what he used to do is he used to pick his first team uh, from that session. He spent 10 days in, sorry, a week in Hilton Head practicing and playing. And lo and behold, anyway, we had four competitive rounds and I finished in the top six. Finished mm. fifth of the 10 guys, the 11 being uh, 10 other guys and myself. Wow. Which meant I played my way onto the team right. for the first tournament. Yeah. which was on our way back from uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina, back up the Midwest. We stopped off in uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma for the University of Oklahoma Invitational. And lo and behold, uh, I was picked for our team and we were playing opposite North Carolina University and I got to play with Davis Love III. Mm. <laughs> as a young incredible as a young student he was there and he was incredible then he made me look so ordinary really <laughs> but yeah, that was a so really I, I remembered asking the coach afterwards i says coach i says because uh, i have a pretty fast golf swing and uh, i says to him coach why did you ask me to, to to go on the team well he says laddie he says as you were hitting golf shots and i was talking to dr daniel he says i had a stopwatch in my hand and he says every time you took the club away and returned it back to the ball he says it was exactly 0.9 of a second for 15 in a row jesus and he says that's what a golf swing should be consistent. Yeah, consistent. He says consistently. He says he had one player. It took one point four seconds. Yeah, yeah. So the the length of time doesn't necessarily matter. It's how repeatable it yes, is. Yes, and yeah. that was it. And that's why he. That's why. He, and I could. I didn't know he. Could, I didn't know he was doing that. Obviously. Yeah. And so that started. That was your trial. That's that was my trial. That started yeah. a lovely period of time, and then uh, of course I, I I played on the team, and then just uh, on the Davis Love yeah, thing yes. though. Yes. Can I ask yeah. how, how how did you fare against? I, I I shot seventy five that day with play with Davis Love. He shot sixty eight. Okay, uh, but seventy five was a very good score. I mean, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have shot seventy five. I, I it was just, but it was just. Uh, he was such a nice guy, and had just that big, long, languid swing of his, and it was just. And the other interesting thing about that tournament, and it's interesting because of my, my work, uh, 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 Jack Nicholas uh, Junior, Jack Nicholas the second, he also played in North Carolina mm. uh, uh, when he was at college. And that tournament, Jack Sr. had come to see his son. Now, I didn't play with him, but I saw him. And then if we trip on then to, say, 2007 or 8, I had the great privilege of working with Jack on building at building Killeen Castle in Dunshockland, where I'm a member. 
And uh, when Jack was officially opening the course in 2008, all his family came over and Jack Jr. was there. And we shared the experience of having not met but played in the same tournament mm -hmm. uh, back in 1982. Mm. So that was nice. It was, uh, so it was, uh, and you got to meet then Jack uh, okay, Senior. But, 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 but Jack Senior, I got to work with him at Killing Castle. Well, tell uh, us a bit about uh, that then. Well, that was, uh, I mean, I, 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 I was really a wonderful experience uh, uh, because uh, it's a signature course and uh, it was a great privilege for me because I got to do all the agronomy and the drainage. And uh, it was testament to the actual owners of the, of the facility of, of Killing Castle that they got me to do it because of my background, because of my experience, because of the reputation I had. Because Nicholas traditionally brings in his own agronomist. Yeah, so when okay. So you, you get Nicholas for a signature course, he brings everybody with him. So uh, a signature course means? Jack himself actually signs off on the design and visits four, three, four times. Yeah, okay. And so, anyway, so Jack, uh, uh, so the first time, so Jack has obviously, you can't design three, four hundred golf courses around the world and not have a big office and a big design team. Yep. And he has that and he has a bunch of guys that does all the work. But when it's a signature course, Jack then, he personally signs off on it. And when he came to visit the first time, the layout was done and then he walks the course and he has a book, just an A4 folder. Nothing fancy with computers or anything, an A4 folder mm -hmm. and each hole has the layout of the hole and what it is. And he sits in, his, in the buggy, he's you know, usually in the buggy now, and he'll look at the hole and look at the map and he'll look at his designers, he'll have two designers, associate designers with him. And uh, in this case, that uh, Keeling Castle was a lovely, wonderful uh, architect called Dirk Bites from Belgium. And he was his, he was his uh, main man. And uh, basically we'll go through that and he'd say, let's drop that uh, X, X amount of feet, let's do this, let's do that. And he'd basically just direct uh, the guys and the shapers would be there, the guys to do the shaping on the golf course. They'd be with us on the course and he'd just tell them what he wants. Nice. And he went around this golf course and he, uh, made a bunch of changes uh, all the way around the course and uh, you know I remember one story it was so funny uh, I think it was our present fifth hole he wanted to lower the profile of the fairway by approximately a meter so that's quite a deep cut okay? mm. and it was one of the uh, young engineers was uh, on the engineering uh, firm that was doing all the uh, earthworks and the engineering side of it Matty had some about some like this kind of stuff and next thing the young engineer says oh uh, Mr. Nicholas I, mean, I don't think that's possible I mean, that's, that's going to be expensive. It's all rock. And Jack just looked at him and says, so. <laughs> In other words. Yeah, get words, it done. That's what I want. That's what yeah. I want. Yeah. So all around the golf course, he's, he's making all these. And of course, they're all wonderful changes, obviously. But the, you know, if you get a Jack Nicklaus signature, you have to have a very deep pocket. Yes. And fortunately, at the time, the boys had, the, the developers had, uh, had the resources to build that kind of golf course. So we get then to the, our lovely 12th hole. It's par five. And uh, it's one that has a beautiful uh, stream in front of it, now a beautiful stone wall. But right where the green was uh, going to be, there was a single hawthorn tree, a white thorn tree, no, a, a, a bush, mm -hmm. a, a white thorn bush. And it it's has that beautiful white flower in May, and it's very common down the country and all over Ireland. And Jack's out in the fair, we're looking in, and he said, let's just move that bush out of there and we'll put the green back up there uh, uh, 30, 40 meters further on. And one of the uh, developers was there and he had said nothing all day, a uh, lovely guy, John, John Fitzsimons. And uh, John said, Jack, he says, you can't move the fairy bush. <laughs> right. And Jack looks at him, could you believe the fairy bush, John? You mean that's a gay tree? <laughs> 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 and John says, no, that's a fairy bush where I'm from. He says, if you move a single fairy bush, you could have seven years bad luck. Right. And Jack turned back around to John. He says, you know, John, he says, you and I at our age, we don't need seven years bad luck. Let's put the green there. 
That's pretty cool. And then John agreed then to do a wonderful uh, wall feature with a beautiful bridge. And it's become one of the signature holes. Right. So it's reachable par five and two, uh, and it's uh, got the stream and it's put it was just a lovely story. And ended up on Jack's website. Ah. Uh, this fairy bush, because of course you know just the yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, But in the country, uh, down the country in Ireland, uh, uh, there are contractors that will not move a single fairy bush because it was meant to where the fairies lived. It's so it's a fisher oak. That's very interesting. It's a fisher oak, but the older people would believe in it. Right. Okay. As in, you can't move it. And in fact, uh, and I can't say for sure, but I do know there was one road done in Ireland a number of years ago, and there was a fairy bush in the way, and the uh, contractor would not move it. And as a result of it, there's a little kink in that road. In the road. Yeah. So it's a real old, it's a okay. real old, real old fisher oak. Uh, the younger members of your audience probably won't know what that's about, yeah, but it's yeah. just a neat story. Okay. And, and that, so, but, uh, but yeah, so that was a really wonderful experience for me working with Jack, because then to do, to do all the specifications, the drainage, and then oh, then the other neat story was a lot of people say, well, you get Jack Nixon, you just, just get his name. And I saw uh, that he visited four or five times to, to, to each time when, when the courses got different stages. Like that first time when he made the initial changes to the, to the routing, mm-hmm. or to how the holes looked. Then he came back another time and then all the greens were being shaped. And then he put his imprimatur on the greens and on the bunkers, mm. the depth and the shape and all that stuff. And on one of the visits, I had done the uh, specification for the grasses. Uh, so I had them all done for greens and tees and fairways and the upper looks. Because at Killeen, it's uh, like what I call a prairie course. I don't like the term inland links because there's really no such thing as an inland links. Because with the definition of a links, that it links the water to the... Correct. It links, it links the... the the sand land to the arable land. That's what a piece of lynx truck is. Right. Actually, that's explained very well at Barn Bugle. That's that's the, what they have. Okay. Uh, and it's, that's Barn Bugle is a course in Tasmania yeah. that you played yes, a few yeah. days ago. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so to, to trip on quickly onto the grasses at Killeen Castle, I did my list out further, and the next thing, uh, Jack is he's really busy back then, so he choppers in, he flies in with his jet, he's choppered from the airport to the golf course, and he's brought back, and then he's, he's heading off to Russia. So Dirk, his guy, I mentioned, uh, Eddie, have you got the uh, seat specifications? Jack would like to see them. So I handed, Jack the, handed Dirk the seat specification, just basically on an A4 sheet of paper with my headed logo for my company on it, mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Connaughton. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next thing, Jeep is going away. Next thing, I see the brake lights on the Jeep. I said, oh, next thing, the Jeep backs up. Down goes the window. Eddie, tell me, why'd you pick those grasses for the greens? <clears throat> so I told him I picked. <coughs> I picked uh, two bed grasses. Back then it was a, an A4 and a G6. And they were uh, the, 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 the in varieties at that time. Right. Because varieties keep changing all the time. Okay. Because they, no, they're, they're, you know, the universe is all the time developing new strains. Right. And by, you, you say, like, just for varieties, for yeah. greens, there's, it's rarely just one type of grass on the green. It's a variety. It's usually, it's the, it's the one species, as in it's the one grass, but then there's different okay, varieties. Okay, so bent would bent, have... Yeah, so, 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 so bent grass is a generic term for all the bent grasses that are on greens. Yeah. But then there's different varieties. Like, there's nowadays, there's 007, there's crystal blue links, there's all different okay. varieties. Yeah. <coughs> the famous ones in the old days were pen, pen, pen cross, was the one we take like Mount Juliet. Okay. When Mount Juliet opened first, they sold the greens with Pencross and they were the super best surface that could be uh, available. And Mount Juliet became famous for that. I mean, oh, they, okay. everyone knew about how good the greens were there. And they were, they were, they were the first creeping Pencross greens that were grown in Ireland and grown successfully to a very high standard. Okay. But that was Pencross. Okay. The, and Pen being developed in Penn State. Right. Another great agronomy school. Uh, okay. And there was a guy there that was a, an innovator in developing these Pencrasses. 
But since then, each, each, yeah. each it moves on. So, so Jack Nicholas. So Jack had, so we had, we had, we had uh, A4 and G6. I had picked for greens at, uh, at Killian Castle, and, and Jack just uh, wanted to know, why did you pick those? So I told him why I picked them. He says, that's good, Eddie. He says, that's what we had in Muirfield Village. No way. And did you, you didn't know that? I didn't know that. Wow. It was just pure potluck. Incredible. Wasn't that told him. So he was here, so he, and he says, and he, and he says, he says, he says, anyway, you, you can't promote that, he said. <laughs> <laughs> really? So yeah. that, that's Killeen Castle. Mm. I mean, you've designed or played a hand in, yeah. in working on courses all over Ireland. Yeah. It, as small as Wicklow's recent chipping green redesign, yes, that was you. Indeed. Yes, indeed. But yes, for, yes. for the, the listeners yeah. out there, name a few of the, the okay, courses that people the, I suppose the, the, the first very big design I, that I'm very proud of was uh, Lutterstown Castle. Oh, yeah. It was, was my first design uh, with a wonderful guy there called Nick Bielenberg, uh, who we built it. And what was wonderful about uh, Lutterstown Castle was that uh, we built uh, 18 holes without moving any real dirt. Yeah. Because the, the site was beautiful and we built greens and cheese and... Uh, just did this wonderful golf course that just fell onto the site. Okay. And that was my first one that I did uh, in Ireland because I worked in Scotland after I, after I finished college in America and then I went to Scotland to work over there and that's where I got my practical experience after college, working with a wonderful company in Stirling and we did a lot of work on pitches and all kinds of things, golf courses and all, all those things. But anyway, so Dutch Town Castle was the first one then and the next big break I got then I did Corstown, which was 27 holes. Oh, okay. Corstown just out by the airport. Very unique project in the sense that the workers this would be the early 90s, uh, uh, and the workers uh, at the airport, and the early 90s was a massive growth period for golf in Ireland. Okay. And regular guys could not get into a golf course mm. in the greater Dublin area. Regular guys, you as, mean? As in, as in regular guys who worked, like uh, there could be, uh, uh, even, even people who worked in offices and that, but it was very hard to get into a golf club because they were all full. Yeah. And they all had very high extortionist entrance fees. Okay. So if you take away, we, we live in Lucan, and, and Matty and Stephen were members of, of Hermitage, yeah. as I was when we started out, but before I went to Lutterstown Castle. I mean, in the early 90s, it was like 10 grand. Uh, Insane, to, joining yeah, fees, yeah. It was a joining fee, and you were on a five-year waiting list. Yeah. So there was this uh, uh, explosion in golf, where, and then all the other thing happened was that golf then became a game for everybody. It wasn't just the doctors and the solicitors and business people. Mm -hmm. It became, uh, so the ordinary working people uh, which it very much is now. Yeah, yeah, which is very much what it is now. And I remember when we, I moved to Lucan in 1994, and, uh, uh, and my local bar there is Courtney's. And when I started going in there in 94, uh, I was known as the golfer. Okay. Because I play golf. Yeah. Now, they have a thriving golf society. Mm. And there's people playing golf all over the spectrum of, 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 of uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, Which is great. That's yeah. what makes it great. Yeah. And that's so, so, so that was the, that was the, that was the uh, um, boom in golf. So Carstown was next, and then, and then I started doing additions like my own home course, which was an absolute pleasure. Uh, it was nine holes that I managed growing up, as I said earlier. And then in the early, mid-90s, they decided they wanted to go to 18. And they asked me to do the Brilliant. Yeah, that was a really neat one. Because I was so close to Mark, because that's where my dad worked. That's where I learned my golf. My brother's a member there, and he's been through the whole gambit of, of, of the golf. He went on the golf administration route. That's Michael, my brother, all the way to being president of the GUI oh, in 2015. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that. So, uh, and, and of course, I was on the practical side of things too. So it was nice. So we did a, so a strong affiliation with Roscommon. But then, where you're from, uh, uh, you mentioned Wicklow, where I just did their beautiful new chipping, uh, chipping green and that. But of course, I did all the remodel at Arklow. Yeah, and you were involved, sorry, uh, in the back nine in, in Wicklow. Yes, yourself, yes, yourself yes, yeah, yeah. Pa well, I designed pa I did the agronomy for it. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's great. W one of the um, 
things you mentioned to me before we were talking about principles of design and architecture and you said to me go read Alistair McKenzie's 13 principles and I did I read it over the last few days which was fascinating what are Eddie Connaughton's principles for designing golf courses well okay I mean we, we, we listen I think in golf course architecture we all learn from the people before us mm-hmm. so we learn from the likes of the McKenzie's we learn from the Colton Allison we learn from all the, those great uh, guys who laid out golf courses and they've never been the old days they were usually professional golfers like James Braid or, 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 Tom, or Tom Morris or the original guys uh, uh, Donald Ross uh, who was famous uh, from, from, from uh, Royal Dornock in Scotland immigrated to America and he's become an icon of golf course design uh, they all think it was McKenzie McKenzie uh, did a lot obviously because he's famous for uh, Cypress Point and Augusta and Augusta and of course here in Royal Melbourne as well as Cork Golf Club and Galway Golf, Galway Club, Golf Club which is us yeah, yeah. and I got to actually remodel the greens at Galway Golf Club okay. uh, a number of years ago so uh, uh, so I'm not saying I've so, so okay so my principles will be very much uh, uh, um, on uh, the same ideal uh, of say having a selection of good long par fours uh, a selection of uh, easy par fours, uh, uh, par threes that hopefully you play in different directions. So, so it's all to do with, and, but it's also to do with the site that you get. Yes. And unfortunately, not fortunately, is that we tend to only get nowadays the new courses are invariably in arable land, so they don't have massive contour difference. You know, I think I always compare Ireland. You take uh, Carlow Golf Club, mm. it's one of the great parkland courses, and has wonderful uh, uh, undulation changes. Uh, whereas most parkland courses, unless you go to Cork, you mentioned Cork and the Mackenzie course, it again uh, laid out on, on beautiful terrain, almost in an old quarry. So, so my principles would be like that. I suppose one of the things I would be known for uh, in back when I started doing things would be uh, having the greens not dissimilar to the Mackenzies in having locations on the greens that if you get your ball in the right location on the green, you've generally a flat putt to the to the where the hole is. Mm. But if you don't, you have a contour to move over. So it could be a two-tier green, or it could be a three-tier green, or it could be green with multiple changes so of elevation. You're rewarded for finding the right portion of a green. Yes, okay. yes. And that's very much what you see here as well. Uh, the other thing that you notice here in the sand belt, and then all the, and then all the old courses are a bit, usually all the greens are pitched, as in their slope is from back to front. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so most of the courses, and that's again going back to the old days of where they have to shed the water. The water had to flow. Yeah. And so, so but they're all pitched at you. So that when you hit a shot in, it should be able to receive it and hold it, and especially if there's these zones. So I'd be a good, I'd have been a, a good guy for having zones on my green complexes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then would, if you got to that zone, you had a straightforward putt. If you were on the easy route, so you might say, say, the back right position on on a green that is covered by a bunker, but the easy way in is the front left portion. If you go the front left portion, then you have a very tricky putt to get to that back right portion. If you take on that back right portion and make it. Bingo, your reward. So that's that's the so that's it's a it's a little bit of risk and reward and a lot of those things and so the, so they're the principles that most of us uh, uh, live by, you know, that we when we do our design and that. So which brings me back then nicely to where we've just played. Yes. We want to go through that then. So absolutely. What was lovely to see uh, at, on the sand belt at uh, uh, um, Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Spring Valley, and then the, the most recently the other day the uh, Met- uh, Metro Metropolitan. Metropolitan, yeah, is all beautifully. Uh, Greens presented to you, uh, pitched uh, at the golfer as they play them, but then all these wonderful contours and especially slopes off the greens. Mm. And Royal Melbourne in particular and Kingston Heath have really massive runoffs. Now, if you take the runoff, say, at uh, Royal Melbourne, and it's one of the things that's 
your designers, uh, like over in Tasmania at Barn Bugle, Tom Doak did one of the courses at Barn Bugle Dunes, and then Coorg Crenshaw did the Lost Farm. And then they all have these wonderful runoffs, the greens. Okay. And that's where they got them from. They got them from the likes of the Sandbell courses, which they got them from the St. Andrews of the world, and our old lakes courses, because right. they all have these wonderful big runoffs. Yeah. The one thing that I did notice this, and I noticed it at Barn Bugle, as a wonderful, wonderful golf course, and in and Lost Farm, and very much in the tradition of the Irish Lakes courses, or Fescue, Fescue Greens, which of course is traditional to Lakes, and only running, I'd say maybe nine, nine and a half on the Stimpisha. Yeah, okay, so not, not lightning quick. Not as, as opposed to say Royal Melbourne or Kingston Heath, or even where you guys are, Spring Valley, where I'd safely say they're, they'll be averaging uh, 10 and a half to 11, I'd say, comfortably, yeah. and then they'll perk them up then for tournaments. But that gets me to the point about the fescue. The fescue grasses survive at a higher height of cut, so they're not cut as low as the bent grass. Okay. So hence then, Doak at uh, Barn Bugle, he has severely contoured greens. Now, in my view, uh, 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 they don't need to be as severe as that, but then again, uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and each designer can yes. do their own thing. Uh, but you know, sometimes I just think they've built such a wonderful golf course with such challenging holes, that you know you don't need to kill them when you get to the green. Mm. But uh, that's that, that. I mean, that's not a criticism. It's just a. It's an observation. Okay. Uh, and I think that sometimes what you get is you get a lot of these guys that do these courses and they keep referring back to this is like a links course in Ireland or Scotland or or, or, or the United Kingdom. And they're right. Farm Google's true golf courses. You could be at Innistrone. You could be at Murphy. You could be in Connemara. You could be in Waterville. You could be in Baltray. They look exactly like that. Really? Okay. Yeah, beautiful, lovely, I haven't firm, been down to lovely, firm yeah. turf. Beautiful. All. So literally, you could be like that. The bit that always strikes me is that then when you get to the green complexes, uh, none of those golf courses I mentioned, unless they've been remodeled, have all these massive contours in the greens. Mm. No, Royal County Down, Royal Portrush, Port Marnock, uh, They're all beautiful. They have they have contours in the greens. But none of these uh, buried elephants, as I call them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're know? reasonably flat. Yeah, reasonably flat. They have change of elevation. Reasonably flat. Because one of the things that happens is that when you get wind and dry weather on a lynx green, and you'll see this at the open, they'll never have the greens running at more than 10. Yeah. Some days they'll elect not to mow the greens because of the wind. The wind. So you get some, if, if you've got a wind going at the, on the greens at Barn Moogle Dunes, they, they'd be unplayable. Mm. Some of them. Because of the slope, because the ball will literally blow off the green. Mm. Uh, so, so in a sense, especially for an open championship, play yeah, is going to be delayed yeah, and everything. Exactly. So, what was lovely though was uh, to see, uh, uh, and it's the first place I've seen it outside of the United Kingdom and Ireland where I've seen pure fescue greens and fescue fairways. Right. Was at Barn Google. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, lots of people have tried. I mentioned America earlier. I mentioned Chambers Bay, uh, and lots of uh, people have tried to simulate uh, links. Irish or, or UK links in America and yeah. they never succeed because they don't grow the same grasses. Yeah. Because of the temperature and because of different things. Okay. Chambers Bay was trying it and unfortunately got kicked in the butt when they cut them down too low for the open and then they, 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 they deteriorated. But anyway, so the comparison between, say, the Sandbelt courses and what I've seen as we're in Australia mm -hmm. uh, is the Sandbelt uh, greens or bent grass, uh, which is uh, the normal cool season grass that I talked about earlier. And uh, so they're uh, pretty, pretty pure at both uh, Kingston Heath uh, and uh, Royal Melbourne and uh, the Metropolitan. All have very good bent grass greens. Okay. Spring Valley have a mix of bent grass and uh, poa. Mm. Well, 
apart from the new one that you told me that you the showed 14th, me, 14th, 14th, that has been resoldered with the bent brass. Mm. So what happens in just on that quickly for, for a moment here is that when you sow bent grass greens and in cool temperate climates like Ireland, uh, after a period of a year to two years, the poana starts ingressing in, 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 in into the bent grass. Mm. And then the likes of say now their manner, they're, they're, they physically hand pick out the, the right, metagrass. It takes over the... It takes over, yeah. Uh, when we, I mentioned Lutterstown earlier, we, back then we were sowing bent and fescue as a mix, which is usually what's on our links courses. Because uh, the old-fashioned bent and the and the fescue, they they uh, gel together very well to produce a beautiful surface. Saint Anne's on Donnymount is a wonderful example of old-style links greens okay. with bent and fescue as a mix. Uh, Port Marnock and Port Marnock links and the island are going the fescue route, and well done, they're doing a great job. But so, so that's that's the difference. So what happens is in, at home in Ireland is that after a couple of years of the bent being in place then the poana starts to aggress and infiltrate into it. Yeah. And then it takes over unless you're in a very aggressive program of taking it out. Okay. And that's 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 beyond the reach of the regular golf club. So what happens is then the metagrass comes in and it 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 uh, migrates and it infiltrates and it coexists with the bed. And you can produce a wonderful putting surface with it. So it has its issues of seeding in the springtime when you see the little white seed heads yeah, on it. Yeah. That, that's what power would yeah. be the little white seedings at, that's at the top. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, okay. that's exactly what it is, and that's the springtime. So, poana as annual is an, it's an annual grass. Okay. All the other grasses are perennial grasses. They like they, they don't produce a seed every year. So the bent grass is does not produce a seed. Poana produces a seed, and it can produce a seed whilst it's being cut at three millimeters. Okay. It's the only plant that does that. Right. So it, it, it grows the seed when it's still quite low. Yeah. Right. I that's suppose so. It's the only grass. It's the only grass that does that. Right. It's the only grass we use in, in turf terms that actually will seed itself at that lower height. And that's why it's so predominant and so uh, aggressive against the other grasses. Right. And in a cool, temperate climate like Ireland, which is moist, it just loves that condition. Now, it's an annual plant, so it can die. But the real secret is the way you, you're able to, through the very good agronomic uh, management, we can keep it growing all the time. Yeah. And it just produces a wonderful surface in most places. Uh, I always ask people the question to say, weren't the greens great? Or <laughs> weren't the greens fast? Or weren't the greens this? They never say the bent grass green or the fescue green or the poana green. It's the greens. Yeah. The ordinary golfer, your, your, your buddies on this po podcast, they won't say they were great. I say, like at Barn Google, beautiful fescue greens. We just wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. I and mean, we don't need to know. Yeah. Essentially, it's back to the six foot rule, I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Back to the six foot rule. If you can roll that ball smoothly, from six feet and it doesn't deviate goes to the hole that's a good that's a good green brilliant doesn't matter what the grass is so two <laughs> i'm very conscious yeah. of your time two two questions before we finish up first one there's a lot of debate at the moment around distance um in the pro game yeah. so we were talking about golf course being taken over by pros uh, who hit the ball miles and miles which isn't necessarily a problem for us amateurs what are your thoughts on that whole distance debate I, I, to be honest with you, uh, um, the pros are going to hit it as, as far as they, as far as they, they can and as far as they Ultimately, what's going to determine uh, uh, the greens, and what you see on the, on the tour, unfortunately, is that the tour sets the golf courses up for their professionals, mm -hmm. meaning that they have the greens soft and receptive. Okay. Okay? I'll give you an example of this, and it only happened only recently in the 2018 US Open at Shinnecock Hills. Where they were overpowering the golf course uh, in terms of length, but the greens were so firm that they were not able to control the ball out of the rough. Yes. 
and that's the key. So it really is coming down to how they set the greens up. Yeah, it's coming down to how the greens are set up. So if you set if you set if you set your greens up as being firm and medium fast, but in case of pro golf, it's usually fast. But firm is the word. If you have a firm green, even the pros can spin the ball out of the long grass. Yeah, and that's and that's what will protect the old classic golf courses. If the if the if they let them become soft, uh, and unfortunately. I was disappointed with the way Wingfoot was set up. When Bryson open, won. Yeah, when Bryson won, he was, he was hitting uh, a lob wedges out of six inches of rough because the greens weren't as firm as they should be. Okay, and um, he was able to run them up the, the kind of tunnels at the front yeah, of the green. exactly. And also then, they, when they did, uh, uh, Wingfoot is a Tillinghast designer, and, and Gil Hans was the guy who he follows Tillinghast principles, and he re redid the greens, uh, uh, put the same turf back down on them, actually. Mm -hmm. An interesting stat for your listeners, the greens at Wingfoot are almost 100% pro-angular. Oh, okay. Yes. And the membership at Wingfoot uh, agreed to the course being, the greens being changed only if they used the same turf as they had beforehand. So they actually went in, they took the stripped the turf off, the old greens, redid the contours to what oh, was the original right. Tillinghast contours, and put the turf back down. Interesting. That's what they did. So, 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 so essentially, the, the, the distance debate will continue Yes, the golf ball uh, is a big issue uh, uh, in that, in terms of how far it goes. You know, I'm 63 now, and I'm hitting the ball today as far as I was when I was 23. Okay. You know, and that's the golf ball. Okay, I still have a good, decent swing and a decent club head speed yeah, and all yeah. that. But you know what I mean? It's, so so but what will always challenge the guys is the green and how firm they are. Mm. And even no matter how long the distance is, and I noted this, I'm sure you guys as well will see it. The golfer that puts the best wins the tournaments. Mm. So the greens are the key. Yeah. The key to the, the distance debate. Okay, by all means, if you're going in with a wedge rather than a seven iron, or you know, I mean, then you have more you have more ball control. Everybody has. But when you have a firm green, but it comes down to as well. Like I mean, if you're hitting a seven iron in and it's a firm green as opposed to a wedge, yes. like you're not yeah. going to have. Yeah, much that's there as well. But what, what, what I'm coming from that is that is that uh, golf courses, uh, uh, golf courses, the golf courses as we know them, as we as, as I knew them growing up, and as a lot of people knew them, what they were uh, like. You know, seven thousand plus yards. Mm. And people talk about eight thousand. They're not going to go that because the land isn't available. Yeah, well, that's it. They're, and they're not all the old classic golf courses, they've got the tees pushed back as far as they can. Mm -hmm. And yes, if they like, if like last last year in Salt St Andrews, you know, if they don't get the windy weather, yeah, they, they, they but they didn't. Yeah, but like twenty hundred par is okay, I suppose, yeah. for an Open Championship, like yeah, you know. Correct, but absolutely. it's probably U.S. Opens and stuff have have more this um, fascination or obsession, I would say, with with staying around par. But yeah. Um, okay, and, and finally, I, I know everyone asks you this question, but, and I know you want to break it up into categories, so I'll let you choose your categories. Give me your, give me your top courses. Oh my gosh. In the world. <laughs> ah, Connor, as I said earlier, if you like saying which of the two boys do I prefer, Maddie or Stevie, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Well, we know it's Maddie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, you get asked the question, and you know, if, if, you, if, you, had, if you had one round, if I was given, if I had one round of golf to play, uh, uh, um, that I knew that I was going on to meet my maker uh, where might that be I, I think I, I have a wonderful affiliation for Pine Valley uh, in, in New Jersey I think that's one I've heard so much about Pine Valley yeah. what, just quickly what yeah. is it that makes Pine Valley it, so what good? makes it so good is that it's basically in uh, it's like a sand belt course because it's on sand but it's pine trees waste, sand waste areas and uh, elevated greens and it's, what's, it's not dissimilar to, say, some of the sandbelt courses. Yeah, okay. uh, but it just is, it's every shot in Pine Valley uh, is to the man's ultimate attention, right? Uh, and that. But it's just, but also just the experience of where it is. 
Hogyha nem, does that mean then that you know, like to say, Balibanyan, Lehincsa, Roy Dublin, Roy Dublin, Roy Portosh, Roy Tan, they're all wonderful golfers. I've played so many, I've been fortunate to yeah. play so many, and I've now played uh, the top ones here. And I think the final uh, kind of comment for you, uh, the Barn Bugle experience is a Lynx experience in this country that you get in the United Kingdom and Ireland because of the grasses that are growing, okay. which is wonderful. The Sandbelt courses, I've learned a lot about them this, this, this week with the uh, generosity of the people we played with. And they're beautiful with the firm uh, contour greens with the bunkers tight against the edge of the, bunk, uh, the greens, which we don't see because we, we all have collars around our, our, our greens everywhere. Whereas in the Sandbelt, yeah. sand the bunker comes right to the edge of the green. It's a great characteristic. It's a wonderful characteristic. And then the other thing then, just quickly before we finish up, because I think I want to touch on it with you, is that what was wonderful about playing the Sandbelt courses and indeed the, the, the Baron Bugle was, the bunkers. Okay. There were natural yeah. hazards. Mm. There was dark sand, there was wet sand, there was different... Anyway, where I'm coming from this is that back home in Ireland and to all your listeners, there's a fascination with the quality of bunkers and people thinking that bunkers should be perfect. Yeah. Perfectly raked, perfectly left to sand. What was delightful to see here in Australia at the top courses in the one of the two, like Royal Melbourne, one of the top courses, Bamboo Dunes. The sand is what it is. Mm. It's basically a hollowed out area uh, that has, will gather a ball and it can have loose sand or firm sand. It is what it is, it's a hazard. Yes. Back home, our golfers are obsessed with having perfect bunkers. And so my final departing comment for you is that bunkers should not be perfect. This should be a hazard, but unfortunately, our discerning golfers that are listening mm-hmm. <laughs> think, Absolutely. think that there should be the exact depth of sand in every bunker from, say, south of Ireland to east of Ireland to west of Ireland to north of Ireland. Uh, my view is that we spend far too much money and spend far too much money on building bunkers and maintaining bunkers for what they're supposed to be. Eddie, it was an absolute pleasure. I think the listeners are going to find this conversation fascinating. <laughs> I hope they do. Thank <laughs> you so much and safe travelling home. Thank you, Conor. Lovely to do with you. <laughs>